Broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network, this is Cultural Baggage. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. Welcome to this edition of Cultural Baggage. I am Dean Becker. I'm glad you could be with us. I'm proud of the fact that newspaper editors and reporters around the country are starting to recognize the work I do here, both as a spokesman for law enforcement against prohibition and as a radio host of the Drug Truth Network. And I want to make note of the fact that we just picked up our 58th affiliate, KWMD, in Kasselhoff, Alaska. I understand it's right near Anchorage. Welcome, my friends. And speaking of newspapers, our guest on this show is a columnist. For the gray lady. John Tierney, he's a New York Times columnist. He's worked for the Times since 1990. He's won numerous awards over the years and on March uh, of 2005 was chosen as an op-ed columnist for the Times, taking over from William Sapphire. Over the years, he's written columns critical of the war on drugs, Amtrak, and compulsory recycling. Tierney started his journalism career as an undergraduate at Yale University where he was editor of the Yale Daily News magazine. He and novelist Christopher Buckley co-wrote the best-selling comic novel, God is My Broker. He's also the author of the Best Case Scenario Handbook. Welcome, Mr. Tierney, to the Cultural Baggage Program. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm uh, glad to be here. Well, uh, John, last week uh, I, one of your columns was titled The SWAT Syndrome. And it, uh, in my opinion, lambasted the recent ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court that allows p- police to kick in our doors with no knock or, or other warning. So your, your thoughts, sir, are we at a cusp? Are we losing our rights? Well, uh, you know, they've been eroded more and more over the years. I mean, this is one more step down that slope. The, uh, I mean, the police in some states don't even have to knock, but uh, uh, this particular ruling said that that um, when they have a warrant where they're supposed to knock and announce, which is a tradition that actually goes back about seven centuries in, in, in English law, um, uh, that even if they violated that, if they didn't wait long enough, if they just barged right in, they could still use the evidence they seized, even though they had violated this procedure, which is just one less reason for the police to bother uh, giving you any warning when they barge in your, in your home. And uh, I mean, this is especially worrisome because... Uh, we've had this enormous growth of, of SWAT teams in the last 20 years um, as part of the war on drugs. Um, you know, they're justified for fighting terrorists, for, uh, you know, for dealing with snipers, but those situations are really unusual. And in practice what happens is that these teams end up just serving a lot of routine drug warrants, and they, you know, break down people's doors. They, um, you know, they terrify, uh, you know, people, many of whom are just, um, you know, small-time users or, or very small-time dealers, or the wrong address, which happens, you know, not infrequently because they don't bother knocking; they just barge in, and they they make these raids based on uh, um, tips, often from very dubious informants, and uh, and there are an awful lot of mistakes that have happened over the years. There's um, uh, there's an upcoming uh, report from from Radley Balco at the Cato Institute where he 
he documents more than 200 sort of botched and unnecessary raids over the last decade, and um, a couple dozen nonviolent offenders who uh, who were killed, and and uh, um, and a dozen um, people who were uh, um, not criminals at all. They had done nothing wrong except be in their homes, and uh, when the police arrived. It, it seems to me that this no-knock situation means that more people will be startled and that more good citizens and more cops are likely to lose their lives. Your, your thoughts on that? Exactly. I mean, th these are dangerous situations. And, uh, I mean, the justification for the Supreme Court decision and for these raids is that, you know, that's so crucial that we get in and get this evidence and we can't give people a chance to destroy it. Um, and, and yet we have these deaths. We have these, just, you know, terrifying traumatic scenes, one of the, the motifs in these um, raids, if you follow the literature, is you know is, is they're shooting family pets in front of children, um, and just you know handcuffing parents and even sometimes children um, during these raids. And and we have this enormous you know, you know violation of people's homes. Um, we have deaths. We have this trauma. And what are we getting in return for it? Well, you know we're getting a few drug seizures. And and if you look at what's happened with the war on drugs, you know they've been escalating it for 20 years. Yet the street price of the drug, the drugs are as available as ever. The street price um, has actually declined. The purity has gone up. Um, it's been a failure. Um, it has not stopped um, drugs from reaching the streets. And yet um, the more they fail, the harder they keep trying, and, and the more of our rights become endangered. It, it, it just tends to corrupt uh, the whole system as it goes along. And you know, right now with these SWAT teams, you have the situation where they've, you know, the federal government encouraged them by giving um, a local police department's military hardware, and and it also sort of has, has provided subsidies to them as part of the you know the uh, the federal war on drugs. Um, and now, so and so, you set up the teams, and then they have to justify their existence by doing these right, you know, by finding something to do. So they go break people's door down, you know, to uh, looking for someone who might have you know smoked a marijuana joint once. Well, John, in my opinion, this this ruling from the Supreme Court is really designed to catch the, the small-time uh, dealer or user who might be able to flush his stash down the toilet, but the big dealers, the traffickers, don't have that luxury. You can't fit a kilo down the toilet. Um, you, you've taken a look at a lot of the uh, the problems of the drug war, the, the pain medication problem in particular. You wrote one column uh, a few months back that, uh, in that regard, a taste of his own medicine. We we are really abusing sick and dying people in the name of uh, the drug war, are we not? Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the prescription drug war has been really upsetting. I mean, and um, I mean, the whole drug war is upsetting. You know, in this case, it, it seems even more bizarre because instead of going after, you know, drug users or you know or you know meth labs, this sort of thing. They're going after doctors for giving prescription drugs, and what, and in the process, they are um, basically targeting um, doctors who simply give, you know, who are treating, you know, you know, patients with pain conditions. And, and what's happened is, is that doctors are very afraid of giving out, you know, drugs like oxycodone, uh, these opioids, which are, you know, can be incredibly effective in treating pain. And it's documented, you know, over and over that there are tens of millions of people with pain that it's a national scandal how it is not treated properly. And one of the main reasons is, is the doctors are afraid um, of, uh, of getting in trouble for this. And so they, uh, they won't give enough medication to their patients. And, and then what happens is uh, that a lot of doctors simply just you know, don't want to take the risk of getting in trouble for giving this out. So 
uh, the doctors who, who who do believe in it and and who, and who give these prescriptions, you know, they tend to get a lot of chronic pain patients who come to them. And then the feds see this, and the feds working with the states, and they see, you know, well, this it's a suspicious pattern because this doctor is giving away is not giving away, but is prescribing opioids. And and so and, and we've had these terrible cases of doctors, and in, in one case, Richard Pay, a patient um, in a bounce, in a wheelchair, getting busted. And even though there's no evidence that they um, have sold the drugs on the street, you know, there's no evidence that they knew uh, that these drugs were being diverted illegally. And yet, you know, there have been these court cases where the doctors are convicted because, you know, basically the prosecutors go in and say, well, we don't think uh, uh, you should have been giving. Uh, these prescriptions out. Uh, we think that the, you know that the patients were lying to you and getting these drugs when they didn't really have pain. Now, in some cases, it's true. There are patients who go in and and, and you know and, and who become um, addicted to drugs and, and and will go and lie to doctors. But it's very difficult. You know, doctors are not policemen, and uh, and it's very difficult. You know, pain is a very subjective thing. It's, you know, there aren't good tests for you know telling who's in pain and who's not. And you know, doctors have to use their best judgment. And and if they're being second guessed and being sent to jail, you know, for not being able to uh, uh, divine that someone was lying to them, you know, that, that has a terrible chilling effect. It's unfair to the doctors. It deprives all their patients of their doctors, and it makes all the other doctors very afraid of giving pain. And as a result, we have millions, tens of millions of people in pain today. We are speaking with John Tierney, New York Times columnist. Uh, John, I I saw. I was digging back through the archives, and I found uh, one of my favorite columns of yours. It was Marijuana Pipe Dreams. D- tell us how that, uh, the approach taken for that column. It's been very strange that the federal government has, you know, has just declared this you know, war on marijuana and has, has devoted extraordinary resources to it. And, uh, and they've become so determinedly you know, focused against this uh, that, they're, that they're determined to stop uh, people from using it for medicinal purposes. And they're even determined to stop people, um, you know, from actually experimenting to see if it works uh, for medicinal purposes. Um, and one case here was that, uh, you know, um, feds have said, well, we don't have good scientific you know, evidence from, from extensive studies that uh, marijuana helps relieve um, uh, pain and, uh, and nausea for, um, you know, cancer patients, AIDS patients. Um, uh, and, and they said, we don't have this good evidence. Um, and so researchers have been trying to study this, and there were some researchers who, who, you know, who had a approval from, um, to do studies, but they needed to get uh, marijuana to do this. And the only legal supply of marijuana in the country comes from this, uh, this supply that's grown for the federal government, and, and it's not very good marijuana at all. It's, it's impure. People have used it, you know, AIDS patients who tried to stop because it was so harsh and it wasn't, uh, working well, and so um, a a distinguished agronomist um, offered to grow marijuana, you know, at a laboratory. This would be completely supervised. It would be, you know, be secure, and and because the Drug Enforcement Administration is so hell bent against medical marijuana, it you know uh, they refused to give him permission, and uh, and they have been. Uh, They've been resisting his uh, his attempt to get it, and there's been a court case here. And so it's this catch-22 where the feds say uh, there's no evidence that medical marijuana works, but then they wa- uh, they stop someone who actually wants to study it and find out and get the evidence. 
Well, John, you're one of the too few journalists who actually get it, who understand that most of the violence, the overdoses, uh, children's easy access, prosperous cartels, and funding of terrorist cells will pretty much vanish following the end of prohibition. Why, why do you think so many knowledgeable people, people who've been in the trenches of the drug war, like judges, uh, district attorneys, cops, uh, doctors, and, and certain scientists, remain so silent about this glaring truth, in my opinion? Why, well, why is that so? Well, I agree with you. The problem is that, that politically it sounds great to say um, drugs are bad and we're going to stop your kids from getting drugs. And it doesn't matter the fact that the drug war has failed, that it's been an enormous expense, that the money would be much better spent on treatment for, for people with problems rather than trying to prohibit it. And, but it's so politically um, dangerous to say that, 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 that Politicians in both parties uh, support the war. Nobody wants to be seen as soft on drugs, and there are also, at this point, frankly, there's just a lot of a lot of people who make money from it. There, are, you know, there's an awful lot of federal money um, and state money that goes to fight this. It pays people salaries, that uh, you know, it keeps it keeps prisons in business, um, and you know, so the, so there's really it. Um, even though there's there's great evidence that it doesn't work, there's a you know there there are giant bureaucracies in Washington dedicated to fighting this, and and there isn't uh, you know much political will to stop it. I, I mean, it's happening in some places, and as you say, it's really people who you know who work in this you know on the street in the trenches who see that it's not working and see that it's a waste of law enforcement resources, but and that most of the problems associated with you know with drugs. Um, come, you know, not from the drugs themselves, but from the prohibition that creates all these illegal activities, that foments violence, that, that um, you know, does in fact help, you know, help finance, you know, some very shady characters because, you know, it's simply because it's illegal. It's the same problem we had during the prohibition, which helped create the mafia. Well, now I understand that um, the New York Times and many other notable publications have come out, if not for ending the drug war, certainly for changing the drug laws, for perhaps uh, ending the war on uh, medical marijuana patients. But uh, if we reach back to the times of uh, Mr. Hurst and his, uh, I'll call it collusion, with uh, Harry J. Anslinger, our first drug czar, and the media helped to promulgate the idea of reefer madness and, uh, and truly the need for drug war, many journalists, including yourself now, are starting to walk away from that mindset. Uh, why aren't they moving quicker? What's your thought? Well, the, I mean, the sad fact is, is that you know, the journalism business is in the business of selling, you know, news and and uh, and scary news sells, and you know, telling people there's a crisis, um, you know, gets you on the front page, gets you um, on the evening news, and you know, so there's a real, you know, tendency for the press to exaggerate problems, and every time. A new drug comes along, or a drug that you know that there's a new fad happening, like with you know with meth, for instance. Um, I mean, meth is a serious problem. I mean, it's a serious it's a serious problem to people who use it and abuse it. But we always um, you know tend to hype everything, make it out into this you know terrible uh, epidemic that seizes and, and that will never abate unless we you know bring you know, uh, police and, and the federal government and drug agents, you know, to bear on this. And, in fact, what happens is that, you know, there are people who um, abuse drugs. There are people who abuse alcohol. Uh, the problems of alcohol and tobacco are, you know, cause far more damage than 
other than the drugs that are the, the target of the drug war, but but we tolerate them. But with the drug war, it has to be, you know, I mean, there are genuine problems, but um, the press has a tendency. They've done it with the meth epidemic. They did it with the crack epidemic. What tends to happen is that you know, a new form of a drug or a new drug may come out, and, and it may be a fad, and then what happens is that people realize that this drug is not this you know, ticket to happiness, that it's not... Um, uh, that there's a downside to it, and people, you know, figure out on their own that it's not. I mean, there are always people who are, you know, who have a certain weakness, but these fads just have a way of coming and going. But you know, when they do, every time there's there's sort of a media scare, um, and politicians, you know, see a chance to score points by promising to to fight it, and prosecutors and police see a way to expand their budgets and get publicity. So you ratchet it all up, then you know, when that problem subsides, you've still got all these. You know, you, You've got this expanded bureaucracy and expanded budgets, and they look for a new, you know for a new crisis. We are speaking with Mr. John Tierney, columnist for the New York Times. John, I know there are a lot of uh, people and organizations out there that are trying to uh, compile and uh, make available data that exposes this this drug war for just what it is. Uh, Map Inc. Stop the drug war. Uh, you know that want people to learn the truth. Uh, I'm wondering, do you or do you know of any journalists who uh, avail themselves to these resources? Um, I think journalists, you know, certainly do look at these groups. Um, um, they're advocates for for, um, for chronic pain patients who, who keep track of these trials against doctors and patients that, uh, that I certainly rely on and, you know, groups like Normal and, uh, um, and uh, there are an awful lot of groups that... Uh, you know, keep tabs on this, and journalists, you know, especially those of us who are skeptics of this war, do keep track of it. And I think that you know they perform a great service in, in standing up and pointing out the facts instead of the hype. You mentioned maybe the press is starting to wake up. I feel the politicians are fighting the battle of the bulge, throwing out everything they have. I think Maria Costas uh, I saw today said that marijuana is dangerous because it contains THC. They're down to that, uh, you know, thin of a toothpick. Uh, what do you see on the horizon, sir? You know, it's hard to know. I mean, it's um, one would think that with the war on terror now that the, um, the uh, we hear the justification that you know this has changed everything and we really have to rethink our assumptions. Um, and you would think that the, um, that we might rethink the assumptions of the drug war, which which saps an awful lot of money that could be spent on other things, and also that that causes you know, causes the United States it sours our relations. Um, in in, uh, in Latin America, it causes great resentment of us, and uh, and it causes problems for us with people who grow opium. And, and that once we become seen as this force, um, we're peasant farmers who grow this, you know, see us as the oppressor. It it complicates efforts to try and and in these countries where there are terror. I, I mean, it helps finance these um, terrorists because you know they of course profit in in illegal industries, and you would think that because of the war on terror that there might be some thought that is it really worth pursuing this drug war if it's going to compromise our efforts to fight terrorism. But so far, unfortunately, I don't, I don't see many politicians making that connection. All right. Well, that's uh, once again our interview with Mr. John Tierney of the New York Times. Sir, I thank you for being with us, and uh, I look forward to your columns. Thank you very much. 
It's time to play Name That Drug by its side effects. Constipation, dizziness, dry mouth, insomnia, loss of appetite, nausea, nervousness, sexual side effects, sleepiness, sweating, weakness, agitation, irritability, hostility, impulsiveness, restlessness, high blood pressure, depression, and suicide. Time's up. The answer from Wyeth Pharmaceuticals for depression, Effexor XR. Terry Nelson retired after 32 years service to the United States government as a border guard, as a customs official, and as an air interdiction officer. He retired as a G-14, the equivalent of a bird colonel. The United Nations uh, said last Tuesday that despite record drug seizures and spraying of herbicides, production of the plant used to make cocaine increased by 8% in Colombia. The findings come on the heels of a similar report in April by the United States Office of National Drug Control Policy, which showed Colombia's coca production skyrocketing 26% from 2004 to 2005, in part due to a near doubling of the area surveyed. Now, the United Nations said this Monday in its uh, Office of Drug Control World Drug Report, they showed global opium production fell 5% in 2005, while cocaine production was broadly stable. Seizures in both drugs, especially cocaine, reached record high. Now, is it stable or is it going up? I don't know. It depends on who you read. Presenting the, the World Drug Report at the National Press Club in Washington, Unidoc Executive Director Antonio Maria Costa said trends in the global drugs market were moving in the right direction, but governments needed to step up their efforts to reduce both supply and demand. Sounds like they just want more money. And then he went on to say drug control is working and the world drug problem is being contained. Well, the United States contributed $780 million to the effort in Afghanistan in 2005, up from $100 million to cover the three previous years combined. In Colombia, by comparison, the U.S. has spent $4.5 billion over the past six years under Spain, Colombia, and a cocaine program. In Afghanistan, clandestine labs turn out so much product that the average heroin price in Western Europe tumbled to $75 a gram of $251 a gram in 1990. This is according to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. Now, in Hamburg, Germany, it's reported a single hypodermic shot of Afghan heroin goes for just three euros, or about one-third the price of a decade ago. Just educate and inform yourselves, folks. You will find alternatives exist. Ask tough questions. It's time for a change. The system is broken. Let's find a solution for our future. This is Terry Nelson on behalf of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, at www.leap.cc, signing off. And now for another black perspective on the drug war. What do you suppose would happen if Congress passed a law that said that anyone convicted of an alcohol-related offense, drunk driving, public intoxication, underage consumption, etc., will be forever barred from getting a home mortgage loan? The very foundation of middle-class affluence, the path to American upward mobility would be permanently denied to those who have demonstrated their irresponsible use of alcohol. Now, some would scream double jeopardy, that the Constitution's Fifth Amendment prevents punishing people twice for the same infraction. Others would argue that the law was in violation of the equal protection guarantee of the Fifth Amendment's due process clause, since rapists, thieves, and even murderers could still get the loans. Some might even argue that the law unfairly targets white males. But one thing's for sure, the outraged cry would be truly frightful. And I seriously doubt that any congressman supporting such a bill could keep his seat for long, and some would likely be recalled, tarred, and feathered by their irate constituents. 
Yet nearly 200,000 American students have been stripped of their financial aid because of a conviction for drugs. Even as we push education as the way out of poverty, the key to successfully securing a place in the American mainstream, we erect an impassable barrier, an irrational restriction, a completely counterproductive policy that targets precisely those whom we should be supporting. If you agree that the aid elimination penalty is unfair, irrational, and just plain bad law for America, pick up your phone and let your congressperson know how you feel, or better still, heat up the tar, gather up some feathers, and let them all know we're serious about ending this drug war madness. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Phil Jackson. Afghanistan is turning into a suicide mission. The Sinless Council is a European foundation which focuses on international security and development issues. Earlier this week, the Council put out a report entitled Canada in Kandahar, No Peace to Keep. According to the Sinless Council, quote, Canadian troops and Afghan civilians are paying with their lives for Canada's adherence to the U.S. government's failing military and counter-narcotics policies in Kandahar. The U.S.-led counter-terrorist operations and militaristic poppy eradication strategies have triggered a new war with the Taliban and other insurgent groups and are causing countless civilian deaths, end quote. Meanwhile, the English newspaper The Independent reported Thursday that the British officer about to take command of NATO operations in Afghanistan is also warning that the crop eradication program there is driving farmers to the Taliban and making the situation even more dangerous. Lieutenant General David Richards is taking over in Afghanistan, just as NATO is preparing to take over responsibility for security in the South from the U.S. According to Reuters, the violence this year in Afghanistan is the worst since the invasion in 2001. More than 1,000 people have died, including 50 foreign troops so far this year. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh, editor of DrugWarFacts.org. Poppygate, bizarre news about the U.S. policy on controlling heroin, featuring Glenn Greenway. Since becoming DEA administrator in July 2003, Karen Tandy has overseen three years of record Afghan opium crops, now estimated at 5,000 tons annually, which provide 92% of the world's heroin. This week, she told a U.S. House committee that her agency is making, quote, great progress, end quote, in addressing the issue. In Afghanistan, token eradication efforts led by U.S. corporation DynCorp have backfired badly. The British officer, due to take overall command of NATO operations in Afghanistan, this week warned that the eradication program was driving farmers into the hands of the Taliban. Another British commander in Afghanistan is quoted as saying, quote, So far, eradication has been a disaster, and we are putting as much distance from it as we can, end quote. Canada's Prime Minister Stephen Harper this week defended his country's controversial troop presence in Afghanistan, carefully adding, quote, Of course, we're not directly involved in the eradication, end quote. Antonio Maria Costa, the executive director of UN Office on Drugs and Crime, stated this week in Moscow that drugs are now U.S.-occupied Afghanistan's largest employer, income generator, source of capital, export, and foreign investment. He called for international action to reduce heroin demand, which he called, quote, the mother of all drug control challenges. This is Glenn Greenway reporting for the Drug Truth Network. This week, the vote was held on the Hinchy Rohrbacher medical marijuana bill, and yes, we lost. But during the proceedings, here's what Congressman David Obey had to say on the subject. 
If I am terminally ill, it isn't anybody's business on this floor how I handle the pain or the illness that's or the sickness associated with that illness. With all, re all due respect to all of you, butt out. I didn't enter this world with the permission of the Justice Department, and I'm certainly not going to depart it by seeking their permission or any other authority. The Congress has no business telling people that they cannot manage their illness or their pain any way they need to. I would trust any doctor in the country before I trust some of the daffy ducks in this institution to decide what is what I'm supposed to do if I'm terminally ill. You can hear more of the proceedings in advance of the vote on the Hinchy Rohrbacher bill on this week's Century of Lies program, which is available at drugtruth.net. And as always, because of drug prohibition, I remind you, you don't know what's in that bag. Please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, on behalf of engineer Philip Guffey, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Jap dancing on the edge of cannabis. <laughs>